Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be back, I think. Hope you've had an opportunity to settle down and settle in after the month of traveling that you've just been doing. Well, having gotten back just yesterday, it's a little premature to say that I'm settled in. (laughs) I'm I'm never sure that I'm settled, but uh, I try. What did you think when, essentially, the opening of the uh, speech to the joint session of Congress by the President of the United States concentrated on the topic of anti-Semitism? Well, first of all, I thought it was appropriate. I thought it was um, certainly something welcome that in the first sentence he, he devoted to, to the uh, incidents and, you know, for all of those who were critical of his failure to, to acknowledge it, uh, I think have an obligation. And we have spoken out on that, but congratulated him for doing it, expressed appreciation for doing it. It was the right thing to do. But it was also uh, it was also his reference to Israel, where he did not mention many other countries. He did specify his commitment to strengthening the ties with our ally Israel, and I think he used a, a superlative term there, as I recall. Right. So both, that got overlooked, by the way, in the course of the reportage about the, his comments on anti-Semitism and the rest of the speech. But I thought it was also significant. Are we are we lacking leaders? And I know that there are systems in place, and that synagogues and schools and JCCs, you know, have connectivity, so to speak, uh, with with authorities and with Jewish leadership when it comes to to episodes and potential episodes. We know that you've told us that many times, but there there seems to be a lack of leadership in our community nationwide on this issue. Um, I, I don't get the feeling that leaders in our community of all varieties. Uh, are speaking out the way they should and are encouraging, um, you know, average people like us to, to you know, take action in regard to what's happening across the country. Are you getting the same feeling? No, I, I think that there's been a terrific response. Uh, there are differences of view about how you respond to this, and that's legitimate. There are those who say that hyping it only means to invite more copycatting, that some who downplay the significance of, of calls as opposed to incidents. And, you know, there have always been cemetery violations, they argue. There are others who say, look at the cumulative facts that the NYPD uh, reported a 90% increase over the, the first six weeks of this year compared to last year, that the um, there's certainly uh, Internet activity, there's certainly threats, that uh, one takes seriously because words of violence lead to deeds of violence. And so there is some difference of view, but I think in terms of speaking out and in terms of taking steps, SCAN, the Secure Community Network uh, operation, which I've mentioned many times here for people and institutions, especially schools and schools to go to, JCCs to learn about how you deal with all sorts of security threats. They did briefings for hundreds and hundreds of the JCC executives, for school executives and directors, Ishibot and day schools and others um, this week alone, with together with DHS and FBI, both of whom I have to say have been very cooperative uh, with them and, and expressing concern. And there's a meeting, in fact, today 
with the head of the FBI uh, or some consultation with him today. And um, there's much more that goes on behind the scenes and quietly than gets reported and shouldn't be reported. But I would say that that, that the response of the community and community leadership has been very strong. Mm, hate to disagree, but I don't. I think there are too many people across this country who are seriously living in fear at the moment and are not sure what to tell their kids in terms of uh, how to conduct their day because of potential attacks and other things that they're worried about. I don't think the average Jewish person in this country is getting that feeling that this that this matter is being taken care of the way it should. But well, well, uh, it's a question. What, what we can't put a policeman in everybody's house. There are police no but there's certain there's certain there's certain institutions but there's certain reassurance that jews across this country are looking for from their own leaders there's certain you know what you some of the things you just described i don't think the average person on a regular basis uh, understands or realizes that someone's out there doing their bidding that someone's out there you know taking care of these issues well that's that's a, a criticism of the media because it's not because you know this information isn't being made available or that we haven't responded uh, on a regular basis. I have to say, when we were in Israel, it got front page coverage all the time, and uh, people very aware there, very concerned about what's happening here. You know that it's been going on in Europe for a long time, far more uh, intense uh, activity than we see here. We saw the threats now that came from ISIS that, that in Britain, where they said that they will just act indiscriminately. There, there was a warning yesterday uh, from uh, ISIS leaders about threatening to attack Jews uh, where, wherever they are. It called to terrorize Jewish communities in the West. They tell them to dress like Jews and to um, take it then. Uh, and in one case, they actually published a list of Jewish communities in Britain. Um, but they they said that they should um, uh, take the, the, the kind of activities that they should engage in. So... Uh, we, we know that this is, is that these kind of threats, while people say, well, haven't actualized, they can be actualized very easily. Oh, yeah. And they can be translated into activity. So there is no uh, lack of concern, and certainly it's something that we and others have been dealing with uh, on an hourly basis, a daily basis for a long time, but warning about these things for much longer. We created SCAN years ago, and the problem is, as I've told you often, is that institutions and, and our agencies and our community organizations, when it comes to their budgets and they have to cut or they want to allocate funds, security was always the last thing. In Europe, it was the first thing. Right. And governments allocated large sums of money in France and Britain um, to assist the Jewish community in, in uh, face of the attacks. But here, uh, the federal government finally allocated money, and the vast majority of it went to, on an annual basis, to Jewish institutions for cameras, for other equipment. Uh, it was a one-time grant, and it, uh, you know, it, it went only so far. Uh, and hopefully, they used it for the purposes for which it was intended. Now, the government is going to uh, uh, allocate more money. Uh, Governor Cuomo allocated twenty-five million dollars for uh, Jewish security in, in New York State alone. I think other states are going to follow suit. And we've had discussions with members of Congress even during the night last night. Uh, and I know Carolyn Maloney is going to hold a press conference about this today. Uh, others are are, are uh, dealing with it. Governor Cuomo. I understand it's going to Israel for a day to discuss it. Uh, people are acting on it. It's not as if 
this is being swept under the rug. I know what you're saying, and I know that people need reassurance all the time and, and the idea that somebody is following. But I have to say the FBI is investigating that they were not able to identify somebody uh, has to do with the use of technology today right. and that it could be a foreign source yeah. that is engaged in this, which makes it far more difficult. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the two major categories, I know there are others, obviously, but the two major categories that we've been focused on in this country, or at least the media has been focusing on, are the cemetery episodes, of course, and the JCC slash major Jewish institution bomb threats, essentially. And the cemeteries, uh, you know, like like you say, you can't, can't have a cop everywhere. And the, generally, you know, those places are not being guarded at night. We understand all that. Um, but when it comes to the other one, it, it is shocking to the average person. And again, I know that sometimes we're unrealistic and have unrealistic expectations. But it's shocking to us in 2017 that someone could actually place a phone call and that it can't be traced or it can't be, uh, you know, detected. You know, where it's coming from, who it's coming from, and who they were influenced by in order to make that phone call. You know, having in mind ISIS and the possibility that they actually, you know, are connected somehow to all of these threats. Are, am I being completely unrealistic that, that these technological, uh, uh, the, 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 the things that we think can be solved technologically are more complicated than I think? No, they are more complicated, and if somebody is sophisticated, and, you know, it could be one individual doing this. It doesn't take much to get the phone numbers of JCCs. Jewish community centers, and to be able to call them and, and issue a threat. Uh, the, the, and again, so far, thank God, not one a, a, a was found to have an actual bomb or, or anything else. We do remember, though, in Kansas City and other places where JCCs were attacked. And uh, we know that what goes on on the campus, which is another category, it seems, in people's minds, but to me, frankly, it is perhaps the most troubling, because we're seeing, we saw over the last years the, the rapid increase in the number of anti-Semitic incidents, whether guised as BDS, which at a core, its core is anti-Semitism, and that does not mean criticism of Israel or having a difference of view over policies with Israel. I'm talking about those who deny Israel's right to exist, who deny the right of the Jews to state, the, the singling out, the, the triple standard, not even a double standard uh, against uh, Israel. But the thin veil is quickly removed, and it's what we warned about for a long time. And as you know, people did not want to pay attention to it. And, and now... People are concerned about the campuses to which their kids go, and it's something they should check out before you send an 18-year-old to a campus. Parents have an obligation. As much as they will check the academic standards, they ought to be checking the security standards there. No question about it. And we discussed, and I, and I, I told you this based on my trip down to North Carolina when I was briefed by the community leaders, that the, uh, uh, the campus security essentially acts independently. And anybody who thinks that anybody has any jurisdiction over them, they are making a terrible mistake. So. And that's why faculty, why donors, why administrators, why the alumni all have to be engaged. And we have done this, and, our, and the lawyers from the Lawfare Project are active on campuses across the country to defend Jewish students' rights and why we are looking for several things. One is a federal definition of anti-Semitism, like the State Department's being applied by the Department of Education, um, to universities so they have something by which they can be measured and why I also call for that international world conference right. because it has to be clear that it's the responsibility of the world to address it the Jews can't address the problem of anti-semitism because we're the victims not the perpetrators 
and we can be tougher in our sta- responses, but whatever it is, it'll be a defensive stand. Hey, symbolic. I, I'm sorry. And I, but I believe this time we need enough offensive stand, and there has to be clear uh, definitions uh, and and uh, clear message that we're not going to accept it. We're not going to raise the bar on what we will tolerate. That has been our our uh, mo. We read it in in the parsha a couple of weeks ago about in, in the Exodus from Egypt that the Jews kept saying we can take it more bricks, less straw, tougher, and they kept saying and until they said at one point no more, God said, now you're ready to be redeemed. Mitachat sivlot mitzrayim, it says, and, it, and the commentator says it's sablanut. It's from under the impression, but it really means from under the tolerance level that you kept saying, and until you were psychologically ready to be free, and we, who are free and have the ability, have to act in that way and show that mentally we are free as well as physically. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listen to sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at nachomsegel.com. On the Nahum Siegel Network and, of course, on our beloved NSN app. Have you given consideration as the site of the World Conference on Anti-Semitism that you're proposing? There, there, you know, symbolically, there could be some uh, interesting sites to hold that conference. Absolutely. And uh, we have given a lot of consideration. I believe it should be in Europe, which is still the front line now today on the battle of anti-Semitism. And as we did for Soviet Jewry when we convened the World Conferences, uh, led by Gold Year, I think, in fact, the first one in 1972 and 1976. It put the marker down, and it, it elevated the cause. It became a rallying and mobilizing uh, force. And, and what I want there is not for Jews to denounce anti-Semitism, but the leaders of the world to be called upon to speak out against anti-Semitism and, and racism and bigotry in all its form. But fighting anti-Semitism will fight uh, all forms of racism because we know that the largest number of attacks are against Jews, including in the United States. And you've given thought to how many countries would participate, I'm sure. Well, we've had some discussions. We don't know. You never know until you actually right. do it. People, of course, you know, indicate. But I think if, in fact, and to a large degree it depends on the government of Israel, it depends on others, that, uh, that if, in fact, it is convened, I think the response would be very strong. People are beginning to come to terms with the, with the danger that exists to communities. Look, churches are under siege. Christians are being killed. Others are being killed. This is a, um, you know something that too often gets swept under the rug, and people don't take the time to really to really uh, examine it and look at what the reality is. And if we do, it's for the 15 minutes of the news report, and then it goes uh, it goes off. You see, saw this week how British bishops and others were condemning and, and uh, uh, speaking out against uh, the apartheid week, Israel apartheid week in Great Britain. Right. And that they have taken, and the British government has taken some uh, strong stance against the uh, BDS uh, because they've come to the realization that this is something uh, that affects everybody. And when, when Jewish students, as the bishop said, feel intimidated or vulnerable and insecure, uh, especially given the rising anti-Semitism, that the the, um, the it requires um, uh, that people stand because it, it means the end of dialogue. It means the end of positive actions, cooperative actions. New leadership at ten downing is that the reason, or is it just a coincidence? No, I think this is this goes beyond just the new leadership. Of course, that helps. And if Mr. Corbyn, God forbid, were were to have been prime minister, I think the situation uh, uh, would have been uh, would have been different. And I think that the the um, 
you know, we see even changes at the UN where uh, Nikki Haley, the ambassador of the United States, has, has started to talk about uh, ending the UN, Human Rights Council's obsession with Israel. We've seen others who have issued statements, including the Secretary General, about the bias against Israel and, you know, the, the criticism. Again, I, I saw the Syrians who come in for treatment uh, in Israel and at, at immense expense and causing a real problem, a budget crisis for hospitals and the government having to step in and, and they pay for all, all these people uh, being treated, that it's something the world doesn't credit Israel, but instead keeps up this constant barrage of criticism. And um, I, I think that, that uh, all of these things contribute to this atmosphere you know, the tolerance for all these years of the money that the PA was paying terrorists. And now we have the Taylor Force bill. Right. Taylor Force was the young Marine who was killed in in, uh, in Yaffa, was walking and, um, uh, and was the victim of a terrorist attack. And he, um, and this, so the bill is called for him that, that it would stop assistance to uh, West Bank and Gaza uh, until the Secretary of State can certify that the PA has ended the acts uh, steps to end the acts of violence against U.S. and Israeli citizens and condemn such acts and stop the payment. I mean, it's just ridiculous that uh, I saw a number, I think 36,000 people receive pensions who are in Israeli prisons or who were killed in, the, in carrying out terrorist attacks that their families, or in the case where those are alive, receive pensions. Uh, many times that what a, a Palestinian... Uh, would receive or, or what a Palestinian policeman would make. So Lindsey Graham deserves credit for leading in this uh, effort, and we hope that uh, they'll work out the language so that it can be bipartisan, strong bipartisan support and a message to everyone. We always wonder if these things are, you know, the, the, the acts of Congress or the attempts to get these uh, bills passed, you know, if they end up being symbolic or not. With the prior White House, it seemed that the money ended up at the PA's hands no matter what. Uh, I don't know what the current White House would do if they would encourage, you know, it one way or the other, but uh, I guess that remains to be seen, right? No, yes, obviously it does remain to be seen until, until we actually do it. But the, the, I mean, the language certainly has been very strong and the expressed commitment to doing something has been strong. So we want to see it translated, but it's up to Congress and to see a bipartisan support, which I think does exist and and uh, will be manifest by the, i'm convinced by the way i wanted to uh, uh, to wrap up the the when we brought up anti-semitism in the united states to open the conversation you know on the cemetery episodes issue for those of us who grew up near jewish cemeteries or you know frequented areas that were near jewish cemeteries these types of episodes you know are, are really frequent i'm sure you're aware of that i mean there are certain places where these types of things go on on a really regular basis you know i, I mean daily or weekly and I'm just wondering if it's possible at this time, because of the atmosphere toward Washington among the media, that they're simply paying a lot more attention, reporting a lot more about these types of episodes, and maybe even people in general, because of their their fears in terms of what's going on out there, are paying more attention, again, making you know, the press and, and everybody else around the country more aware of these. Is that possible? I think that there is something to that, that the, 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 there is a greater awareness, but because of the general tensions and the forces that were unleashed long before the election and not traceable to to the election and not uh, just on the right but on the left as well during that we saw the expressions 
nasal expressions that, that emerge. And you're right. I mean, I thought often about the fact that the cemetery desecrations, you know, people, young people would get drunk and they would go to the cemetery and they would topple stones and they didn't do just to Jewish cemeteries. Here in New York, I remember numerous times when uh, Christian cemeteries or others were were, uh, similarly desecrated and most of them are unguarded. It doesn't take much to climb over a fence and engage in in, in a wanton act of, of violence. The the, the the fact is, though, that when it occurs in Europe, we all scream and yell and demand the government to act. When it comes here, you know, because we know the society isn't isn't promoting it, now people are afraid that, that it has become too commonplace and that the acceptance levels are, are higher. And I think that is evoking the greater response. And it is, it is a horrible act when you don't have respect for the dead. You don't have respect for the living. I am not questioning that at all. I'm simply saying that, you know, nighttime at cemeteries is a very easy, convenient hangout for people who want to, uh, you know. How many times have we visited cemeteries and you see beer cans laying around or other things on a Sunday morning because, you know, the weekend, the Saturday night was spent drinking there or Friday night. So you're absolutely right. They're they're too accessible and they're easily vulnerable. I don't know that you we have the resources. I mean, if you think about the number of cemeteries in abandoned, in, in former Jewish communities, or uh, like this one in Philadelphia that, that we just saw, was in an area that had a big Jewish population, but today doesn't. And that is true in often in these cases. Uh, and, you know, it's the obligation to, to, to maintain it, the community's obligation and the owner's obligation. But too often, it's it's just too easy to do. I saw an article in your Daily Alert. I just can't find it now. A, a representative from which African country was with the prime minister this week? Zambia. Now, I don't know. You, you could tell us. I don't know what the relationship is. I did see him, yeah. Oh, did you see him? Yes. I don't know what um, the relationship is. You know, there's certain African countries you've told us, you know, that have a very cold uh, a position toward Israel and others that have really warmed up. So you could tell us about Zambian leadership. But I didn't even realize that there, there, there's an African union that Israel was removed as an observer from? Is that what happened? Yes. Um, Why? And in fact, I went a year ago, two years ago, we we went with a delegation at the invitation uh, of uh, the OAU presidency uh, at the time, which was Equatorial Guinea, They invited us to come. And uh, when we sat in the hall and were given a very honored location, um, there was a huge brouhaha, and the Iranians, who were observers, Palestinians, with some support from an Egyptian, uh, protested, and they couldn't start the meeting because we were in the room. They kept saying, the Israelis are here. They're not allowed to be here. <laughs> and and we had a, a showdown with them, and eventually we we, uh, we left. Uh, but even the American Assistant Secretary of State, who's the ranking uh, African Affairs person in the U.S. government, was barred from the hall. Uh, the OAU, the Organization of African Unity, uh, now readmitted Morocco, and the king is traveling the, the continent. We have seen a really remarkable change in terms of overall African policy. The problem is that these institutions are easily hijacked. And now the Zambian president, amongst others, has said that they're going to try to reinstate Israel's uh, observer status. It is easy to mobilize the the objections and and the people like uh, you know with Iran or the Palestinians and some of the others there to to get them uh, uh, worked up. I have to say we received an official apology for, for what happened, and I had meetings with thirteen 
African heads of state in the one day, and many more had wanted meetings. So on an individual basis, the relationship was fine. It was the pressure that uh, these outliers put on the on the government, and they and they held it up for an hour uh, because of it. But as an example, does Zambia benefit from Israeli technology or import? Ex- so you should have to see the delegation that the president of Zambia brought. I think he had the vast majority of his cabinet there, and he came for five days, and he um, and he's interested not only technology, agriculture, water. I mean, the list of things which uh, Zambia wants to pursue with Israel, and which many other African countries, I know all the ones we meet, how many of them have been to Israel, want to go to Israel, ask us to intercede to help them go to Israel. Uh, There is a big change in in Africa, and they are also facing facing the, the, the big threat today of Iran. Surprisingly for most people, but it is today, it used to be China, which they say, you know, would come in and rape their countries and take things out. China is still very active in Africa, but the threat that they see today is is Iran and Iran's infiltration, undermining governments, you know, spreading uh, Islamic extremism. Uh, this is a, a major concern, and they want help on that, too. And speaking of China, I didn't even realize that uh, ISIS has its, uh, has its sights set on China. And, and, and then, of course, in the context, in the context of the story, ISIS has their sights set on everybody. <laughs> that, that's, that is right, but it's, it's an important point because the, 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 in China, the Uyghurs who are Muslim in Xinjiang province have long been a problem. There's, the Chinese forces have been fighting them. There have been mass arrests. There are many things uh, that, have, that have taken place, but for many years. Now ISIS is saying that they are targeting um, uh, China, but in fact, it, it, um, fighters, young uh, Uyghurs from uh, China have gone to Syria to fight and now are coming back and the Chinese government is very active to trying to co- uncover them, fight them, oppose them from uh, from coming in. But when you see things like the Iranian defense minister talking about the need to, to uh, fight America and its ally Israel and that that's the main threat and, and you, inciting that language, that we have to gain the upper hand and we have to operate all over the world against them and we have to have sufficient power to surprise them everywhere and hit them hard. Uh, you, you, when you see the leaders of ISIS uh, expressing their uh, threats, you know, in Egypt against the cops, but talking about their global threats and going from Sinai to the whole region and uh, maintaining the... Um, and then even if they lose in Syria, and this is the point that I want to make, is that, that people shouldn't think that this means the end of the, of the ISIS threat. It will morph into more of a global threat, and they will, unless we continue to keep the pressure and really dismantle them and do whatever is necessary. As I said, you know, I took that warning from the, um, the head of the, the, the country's major watchdog, a guy named Max Hill in Great Britain, and he said that these indiscriminate attacks on innocent civilians and essentially saying that we can't prevent it. We'll try to fight them. We try to identify them. That's the nature of asymmetric warfare, and, right. the, and the Iranians called for it, and so does uh, and ISIS engages in it. Yeah, and well, I mean, the, the China article spoke to me that, uh, or said to me that uh, they're, they're not going to be satisfied until there's a world war, essentially. I mean, that's, that's the goal. ISIS wants to engage everybody and, uh, and you know, and, and, and get rid of as many infidels as possible. It's true, and they, they 
shift easily in their activities, you know, like the ISIS in Sinai, uh, now attacking in Egypt, but the, the going after the Copts and the Christians in, in northern Sinai, that they had to leave because they, they murdered a number of them. Uh, and then tomorrow they can shift their focus to, to Gaza or they can go elsewhere. This is... Um, you know, a very fluid action, and therefore hard for even for Israel on its border to anticipate what will happen in Syria and how that impacts uh, Israel's security. Yeah, Israel is exporting natural gas to Jordan uh, through a an American intermediary. It seems. Are there other countries that that Israel is now actively exporting natural gas to? There are uh, many plans underway for a pipeline from Israel to Greece and Israel to Turkey and from Greece into Europe, Turkey into Europe, and for their own use. Uh, Some of the plans are in cooperation with Cyprus. There's talk about using the LNG facility, the liquefied natural gas facility in Egypt, which is dormant, and they they are exporting to Egypt as well. They want to obviously help the Egyptian economy be stable and... um, uh, and we're talking about the possibility of exports to to China and elsewhere. So the you know the, I, I was at the site and we were in Cyprus last week and talked to the people there and the government there, which is working very cooperatively with Israel. Um, that the uh, potential of what they can the exports and the economic potential, but also the the degree to which this can change. Israel's relations uh, with a lot of the world. You know, and maybe, and maybe it was because of the week I had with Nefesh Benefesh, but I can't let this, and I'm not begging for good news, Malcolm, but it's just unbelievable. Less than 70 years later, do we even realize what we're living through? You know, we've gone from an era 70 years ago, you know, coming off of, of riots where Arabs would, uh, at, you know, at a moment's notice go, go and wipe out Israeli towns. Uh, to and and you know where where the where the biggest weapon on the Exodus when enemy ships were around were, were potatoes, frankly, that they were hurling you know at the enemy to an era where where Benjamin Netanyahu is essentially right, you know, hop aboard the bandwagon, everybody, because Israel is going to be leading us going forward. So the you're right, and it's it's not just in the energy field, the amazing things that are going on in medical discoveries and research every day, a, a new drug, a new. Uh, in medical device, in in many other areas as well, and its impact is, does not go unnoted, uh, um, even in countries that tend to be uh, more hostile to Israel. The, the there is a lot of good news. Unfortunately, it always gets eclipsed <laughs> by the you know that's not what people are interested in. No, I know. Just and, and but we saw it on our trip. You know, we were right. in Morocco, as we were, you know, in Egypt and in Cyprus. We talked a little bit about it about the receptivity. The the openness with which uh, which was not there a few years ago, and we do, put, and it, it destroyed a whole cadre of jokes. You know that your parents and grandparents' favorite line was, "Why didn't Moses turn right instead of left? We would have had the oil. They would have the sand, you know, etc. You know, and they were ready to tra- trade milk and honey for oil. Well, now <laughs> Israel finds one of the biggest um, energy finds, Leviathan. In, in many, many years, and it will provide for decades for Israel and for exports. Hey, hey, it's Adar. What about my favorite joke? How do you make half a fortune in Israel? Bring, uh, yeah, bring a whole fortune. There. Right? Bring a I whole fortune. I don't make fun of Israel. So no, but I'm, I, but I'm saying that the joke doesn't even apply anymore. <laughs> I, I said to you, all the jokes are exaggerated. Un- humor, which, uh, you know, 
people Unbelievable. Who, knew, knew how to leave Israel as a millionaire, go as a billionaire. And, and, and this week we had an opportunity, and you've done this a million times, we addressed high schools and middle schools. First of all, you ask them to raise their hand who has a relative living in Israel, over 90%. Who's been to Israel over 90%? In my elementary school class, there would not have been that kind of percentage. It would have been close to that. The connection. Well, yeah, the, don't, don't forget, we didn't have the ability and the costs and many other things. Today, young people, and I, and I look at my own grandchildren, I think about it, that they, you know, they go to Israel. They've gone several times. I didn't go un, until I graduated college because it, it cost too much and, and you know, there were... It, it wasn't the commonplace thing, and people didn't spend a year learning in Israel in the same way, right. uh, or two years or three years. And uh, you're right, but I'm saying, people take it for granted. Right, and, but I'm saying the connection it is a big shift. The, the connection is unbelievable, but the real shift is that we're now, you know, raising a generation who cannot even start to relate. For us, meaning my generation, it was tough to relate to, you know, pre-state Israel. Now you, you, they can't relate to pre, you know, uh, pre uh, reunification of Jerusalem, Israel. Forget about you know trying to relate to you know the Six Day War. Just you know they they have to you know they're only studying it. Through- they have no idea. And exactly. I, I test this all the time. They have no idea. And if you ask them who Ben Gurion was, and they don't know. And I'm talking about yeshiva kids and day school kids. And remember that the sampling you're taking is the minority. If you go to the general Jewish right. population, right. the numbers are not anywhere as uh, correct. Like this. Correct. Still, the, the, the connection is amazing, and the second point is that, that, the, the, that we are dealing now with Jews around the world um, who, who cannot even relate to the era that I was referring to, the pre-state era. You're talking about the Exodus, right? Yeah, the Egypt. Exodus, pre-state. No, I meant from Egypt. <laughs> oh, that Exodus. No, not, a, not that one. Yeah, I don't remember that far back either, frankly. Uh, I know that you're planning, Yom Yerushalayim will be there, Bezrat Hashem. Uh, you know, you and I, for years have encouraged people to um, to travel. I got I got to share I got to share this with you. Someone came over to me and said you you begged us in 2014 to go during the war, so we went. You're begging us now to go for Jerusalem 50, so we're going. And I and I stopped for a second. And I said, you know, this is like one of the first times ever I'm begging people to go to Israel for a good reason. You know, you, usually it's because God forbid terrorist attacks, intifada stabbings, like we were encouraging people last year. And now we have an amazing reason to celebrate to be there in May. It is true, and I and I am afraid that this anniversary will not get the attention it deserves. And I get credit Mizrahi for taking the lead on this. And there are going to be amazing things going on that week, uh, big celebrations. And if you take Jerusalem for granted, you know everybody yells and screams when we raise the protests about what the UN does. But frankly, our statement is just as great. When we're there physically, it makes a statement. If we're not there. And they don't see huge throngs coming there and celebrating, not just from Israel, but coming from outside, from all over the world, to show that we really do love Yerushalayim, that we really do care about its future, its unity, and that we will stand against the UNESCO resolution, which stripped it of its Jewish and Christian identity. This is the best way to do it, is by our physical presence. I was there as you know, over the last weeks and off and on, and it, it was, the weather was gorgeous. There was so much to see, so many things that you, I never get to see. You moved and, in practically. Uh, pardon me? You moved in practically. <laughs> not, not enough. I've got to move the practical part. And uh, while I look forward to Pesach and going to La Jolla and all that, but then the you come to the opportunity after that to go to Yerushalayim and to celebrate and to be part of the big events that are going to take place. I don't know how anybody who can 
who can will miss it. I don't. I just don't get it. All right. I can't thank you enough. Uh, next week we will reconvene. Have a oh, next week Shabbos Zohar. Oh, that'll be a good message, everybody. Make sure you're tuned in. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. My pleasure. Be well. Good Shabbos to everyone. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Wow. That was one exhausting session of the weekly update, wouldn't you say, folks?